Hello. In 43 BC, a year after the assassination of Julius Caesar, a man's severed head and hands were nailed to the speaker's podium of the Roman Senate. They had belonged to Marcus Tullius Cicero, who had risen from humble origins to become one of the most significant political figures in Rome. An advocate by training, master orator, his name has become a byword for rhetorical skill and eloquence. He lived a remarkable life in the dying days of the Roman Republic, but also wrote extensively on rhetorical theory, religion and philosophy. The legacy of his writings on Western education and thought in the Middle Ages was immense. Today, we focused on his earliest surviving work. De Invenzione, meaning on invention, is a treatise on rhetoric written by Cicero as a young man. Though criticised by the author later in his life, it became one of the most influential books on rhetoric in medieval Europe. With me to discuss Cicero and De Invenzione are Thierry Hirsch, a recent Classics DFIL graduate of Lincoln College, Alice Harbord, a third-year undergraduate classics student at Corpus Christi College, and Andrew Sillett, a lecturer in classical language and literature at Brasenose College. Thank you for joining me. Andrew, perhaps we could start by putting Cicero in context. When was he born? Where did he live? Yes, so Marcus Tullius Cicero is born from a humble background, born in a hill town called Arpinum, um, just out, well, quite a bit outside Rome, son of a scholar, I suppose we could call him, a man who spent most of his time in libraries, the grandson of a local Roman politician, uh, sorry, a local politician uh, in his Italian town, a domi nobilis. So a local town councillor. Exactly, yes, yes. Um, except far more puffed up. <laughs> um, it's a town that has um, plenty of connections with Rome. Um, people born there are all citizens, and at the time that Cicero is born, they're starting to export their great talents to the city of Rome. People like Marius and Gratidianus are being sent out to Rome and um, are starting to rise through the political ranks there. No doubt wanting to harness some of that glory for his own children, uh, the father of Marcus Tullius Cicero sends his two sons, Marcus and Quintus, to Rome to get an education at the house of Crassus, one of the biggest aristocrats of the time. You have to remind me, so when this was the first century BC? You That's said right, yes, yes, 106 um, BC he's born, um, and um, in his teenage years Cicero is sent to Rome to get his education. And what did he learn there? What was he being taught? Well, as I'm sure Thierry will be able to tell us later, um, oratory is the absolute backbone of um, a young Roman male's education. You learn how to speak, you will be able to succeed in life. Everything in Roman life hinges on your ability to make a good speech, make a persuasive argument. That can be speaking in court, that can be persuading a business partner to do something, that can be persuading the whole Senate to go to war. If you can't speak, you can't function in Rome. Perhaps a point worth making on education system is that basically only the upper layer of society gets to rhetorical studies. The lower class of Roman society, um, if lucky, would be able to read and write, and then something like middle class would make it um, to what we might call secondary education, where you would learn about um, the interpretation of the poets. And then basically um, the upper layer of society uh, would go on to rhetorical studies because it's only for people who would enter the profession of advocate and the political life who really need the uh, rhetorical tools to be successful in what they are doing. So from what it sounds like, Cicero... Okay, he wasn't born into the Roman elite, but he still had some influence from his father, and he got, would you, would you say, the best education that could have been got at that time? I think that's very fair to say. Crassus is 
um, famous for the um, number of young people from all backgrounds, but all wealthy backgrounds, um, whether they've got political forerunners or whether they're Roman businessmen, the wealthy elite are sending their children to Crassus, and the sort of child he is producing at the end of this is the sort of person that's going to dominate the Senate in times, in times to come. So we've heard this word advocate in the introduction and in Thierry's speech. An advocate is what Cicero becomes, so perhaps we should describe exactly what that is. Alice, do you want to come in? Or? Well, there's a big division between an advocate and a lawyer in the sense that we would think of it, in as much as the Roman judicial system very different from ours in that there's no Crown Prosecution Service and as such, if you want a case to be brought, it has to be a very personal issue and done, motivated by personal concern. Well, personal grudge, personal we might grudge, even say. Personal grudge, I'm afraid so. <laughs> the position of advocate, therefore, is very much more perhaps what we would think of as a barrister than as a, just as a lawyer. They, don't, they aren't concerned so much with interpretation of the law itself as putting a persuasive case which is probably what makes Day in Wentione such an interesting text, because there's actually comparatively little, in comparison to Cicero's later oratorial work, De Oratore, than one might expect on linguistic flair, and far more on the putting of a case. Well, so thank you very much for that explanation, and you've brought in these two critical works from Cicero's mm. oeuvre that I suspect we'll spend most of the rest of the programme talking about. So, De Inventione... It was written quite early in Cicero's life. Um, when about do, do we think it was written, Thierry? We don't know exactly uh, when, <laughs> so we, we can't uh, pin it down to a particular year, and guesses span from the late 90s to the late 80s BC. So if we think of him being born in 106 mm. BC, he, he's really very he's younger than almost all of us yes. <laughs> around this table. Late teenagers, early, early 20s. Yes. That's very true. precocious exercise mm. at the age of yeah. 16 to sit down and write um, a handbook to the first stage in, um, in but, oratory. But on the other hand, um, advocates normally appear first in the courts at the age of around 20. So it's a major difference with what we have today. And um, in, in that sense, it's very probable that he wrote this treatise before um, he had his first major cases. And that's Basically, um, the, the first major case that we know of was in uh, 81 BC, I think, and so that, that's a likely date before which it was written, and the latest internal evidence that we have in De Inventione refers to 94 BC, so uh, it's very likely that it was written before 94 BC and 81 BC. And but between, like after 94 and before yes, 81 exactly. I believe Cicero comments on the writing of it, saying both that it was written at the time that he was a puer, but also at the time that he was adolescentulus, which is two different kind of classes in Roman youth, concerning, not really as we would think of adolescence, but... Um, that is perhaps the time that you would enter public life in your own right, whereas as a puer you wouldn't. So it's difficult working where the intersection between these two... It's a slightly vague area. This yeah. information um, is given by Cicero uh, at the beginning of De Oratore, book one, um, but the, the context there is that he basically wants to denigrate uh, his youthful De Inventione, and so the question is whether... Uh, we can actually use the information of poor uh, versus adolescents uh, or adolescentulus as referring to precise uh, time span in his life or whether it was just uh, another... Um, a humble brag. Yeah, a, a trick of Cicero <laughs> saying, well, although I'm just about um, to uh, write uh, what will probably be my masterwork, Actually, when I was very young, I already uh, wrote something, but now I'm much better. And <laughs> basically, everyone 
else is still writing the sort of book that I was writing when I was young, but I've uh, made some progress since, <laughs> since then. Diara Tiari, you wrote in, wrote in your notes, was the next book he wrote about rhetoric, but many years later. Yes, so um, De Oratora... Um, oh, probably my, my stress is wrong, I apologise. <laughs> uh, was written in 55 uh, BC, and so we, we've got about 30 years in between where Cicero didn't write any theoretical treatise at all, neither on rhetoric nor on philosophy. The most probable explanation for that is that he was so busy as an advocate and as a politician that um, there was just no time and no reason for him um, to spend time on writing things that not everyone might be interested in and uh, for which you might not become as famous as if you were acting on the forum as an advocate or as a politician. You can see how philosophical treaties written when you've already made a name for yourself are really just spinning out your fame and a version of writing, you know, it's the sort of equivalent of the paperback autobiography you might see in W.H. Smith of, say, Cherie <laughs> Blair after the Blair years, spinning out the fame she's had in the past. My friends around the table may disagree with me in this, but personally I actually think that Cicero's philosophical writing is really nowhere near as good as his oratorical writing <laughs> and it's very I mean it's very well characterized it's still very much got the Ciceronian flavor in terms of he's he, he's very moralizing especially in a work called De Officiis which is about your kind of duty to your fellow man well you, you, hmm. you probably uh, could say that uh, in, in Cicero's uh, later theoretical works you always feel the advocate speaking so he's not yeah. a neutral scholar writing about it but he but always an has a very strong opinion it's popular about philosophy it. written by a um, an old hack <laughs> okay so what, what, what um, we also have to bear in mind is basically um, the rhetorical treatises and the philosophical treatises especially the philosophical treatises most people who uh, would be reading such treatises would be able to read the Greek uh, originals and wouldn't need Cicero as a translator uh, in, in many senses to just refer the content of those books and so uh, what Cicero is doing is giving his interpretation and his views on those subjects. So Indeed, and mm. he's creating a language in which you can do that. I think that's a very important um, point to make about Cicero's philosophical project is that he's interested in creating a language in which you can talk about philosophy in Latin. You have to remember that philosophy is an entirely Greek invention at this point. It's based around the Greek language. Plato's dialogues are intensely interested in how the language of Greek, the specifically Greek language, can tell you things about the nature of the world. Converting that into another language, the very idea that that could be possible shouldn't be taken as read. And it's part of um, Cicero's boast about his command of the Latin language that he can transfer these great concepts out of their native tongue and into Latin. You think of French existential philosophy, for example, um, so much of Derrida is based, for example, on French puns. To be able to translate Derrida into English, you'd have to have enormous command of the French language and of the English language to be able to convey those very lexical ideas in, your, in a new tongue. And it should probably be thought of in those terms. It's Cicero's way of boasting about his command of the Latin language and of Greek that he can do this and allow other people to take up the torch after him. Did he have to invent new Latin words in new vocabulary to express these Greek concepts, or did he manipulate everything with, with what he found? I think what we can say is so clever is that he tries to stay as far as possible away from creating new words. Um, in many ways, that would be um, an admission of failure if you have to create a new language <laughs> to do this. It's about repurposing the words that he has and creating new metaphors 
for understanding things. One of the big problems that Cicero comes across in this is that Latin doesn't have a definite article. Um, <laughs> and so much of um, Platonic thought is about um, using the definite article to talk about the qualities of things, um, torcalon, the beautiful thing, the quality of beauty that is in every single thing. If you try and take that into Latin and you don't have a definite article, um, how do you do that? Cicero has to go through various metaphors and use abstract nouns, for example, um, to make that, make that work, but he tries to stay as far as possible away from creating new words in a way that would make it look like he's creating a new jargon. I think that's the important thing to say. Cicero doesn't create a new jargon. He makes it feel like natural Latin that you would see in a courtroom, for example. He's not familiar. the only attempter of this. There's a work by Lucretius called De Rerum Natura, which is a, an attempt to bring Epicurean philosophy into the Roman mainstream. And he's almost evangelical about it as a way of thought. And um, for that reason, presents it in verse, which may seem very idiotic for philosophy, but actually um, many read it as an attempt to make it attractive reading. But that, that's, what the other, that's not what Cicero does. No, that's not what Cicero does, but it's part of a, it's part of a, part of a wider tradition of... What, what, you, what we would call kind of a Philhellene society, which is a, a love in Rome of Greek culture and a, a want simultaneously not, not just, not merely to appropriate it, but to develop it further, to, as it were, reclaim it, add a stamp. Fantastic. I feel yeah. we're rather ahead of time, but it's wonderful getting a real sense of perhaps a slightly older Cicero, his advocate style, what he brought to the Roman literature and philosophy. But this is... I, I think one of you told me earlier, actually quite a, a different style of thought to what he had much earlier in his life. And so I, I think it's time to uh, get back to De Invenzione, the thing we've been sort of talking mm. around, maybe say it straight away. W what is this book about, Thierry? This book is basically a rhetorical handbook. Um, so it's a, a, a practical manual, do you even say it's, that? It's um, a theoretical manual, so okay. uh, something which we think is very close to what was uh, actually taught in the rhetorical schools uh, at Rome, although we uh, don't have any concrete evidence of this um, so that we, we could see what was really going on inside the schools. And since uh, there, there was nothing like the Roman syllabus in rhetoric, basically every teacher could more or less define what he would treat in the schools. There, there were several standard things, but within those rules you could still add things, leave others out, and also depending basically on the preferences that you would have for certain predecessors. What does Cicero choose to focus on? So uh, Dane Vantione basically um, was announced as the first part of a major project. So um, Cicero says um, that he will treat uh, all the so-called partes artis, um, so literal translation would be parts of the art of the theory, and which we might rephrase as stages in the composition of a speech. Inventio um, is the thinking out of the content of your speech. Um, Cicero uh, defines it as follows. Invention is the discovery of valid or seemingly valid points to render one's course plausible. So that's basically the first step that you have to make, just thinking what you're going to talk about. And then the next step would be to arrange all this content um, for your speech. And then you go on and think about uh, which stylistic level do I want to use and uh, which phrasing do I want to use in certain parts of your speech then you memorize the whole thing, or let's say the, the beginning, the end, and the most important parts. And in between, basically, you just memorize the most important ideas, and then basically you improvise around that. And the final step is then basically delivering the speech. And so De Inventione is just 
the first part of a multi-volume work which Cicero announced and which he never uh, would write. So he would write De Inventione and then basically the whole large project comes to an end. And we don't think it, it's, it's lost in transmission. You actually think he never wrote it. Um, well, th there are several elements that suggest that he never wrote it, so um, he doesn't refer to it at all in his later works. We don't know of any other part, for example, um, mentioned by Quintilian. And um, so it seems very likely that Cicero wrote De Inventione just before he embarked on his career as an advocate, became too busy um, to pursue that larger project and then just gave it up for career purposes. It, it seems almost impossible to imagine that he could have written the, the whole thing of De Inventione, De Dispositione, De Onatione, De Memoria and De Actione <laughs> without Quintilian making some reference to that. that and and Quintilian is a, is a later historian, he, later He's writer. a professor of rhetoric mm. under Trajan. He writes a book that's called Institutio, or it was the training of the orator. It's just impossible to imagine that something like this, it would be catnip, to Quintilian, if Cicero had written his own Institutio Oratoris, then he would be all over it. In addition to this, it's worth remembering that so much of the Ciceronian corpus is preserved that it would almost be surprising if we had not only a speech that we didn't have the text of, but also that we had no mention of, given that he's such an um, important figure in the history of the time. We'll talk um, with Thierry a bit more about the detailed structure and content of uh, De Vincione. Uh, but let's go back to our general chronology of Cicero's life. I think we've left him at around 81 BC. He's just become an advocate. And there's this one particular case, very famous case, where he, he makes his name in a big way. Um, Andrew, do you want to, to come in on that? I'd be happy to. Um, so I think we imagine that Cicero's been um, knocking around the civil law courts at this time, helping out in various cases to do with inheritance or um, property or trust, etc. Um, the civil law circuit is very different from the criminal law circuit. Criminal law, as you can imagine, is where you can really let your uh, oratorical fireworks go off. And Cicero's first big break in the criminal courts is defending a man named Roscius from um, another Italian, uh, small Italian town called Ameria. And Roscius has been a very naughty boy and has been charged with parasite, that is, murdering his own father, in order to inherit the farms on the basis that he was about to be disinherited. Cicero, very cleverly, um, makes the argument that, in fact, Roscius didn't murder his, uh, his father, and, in fact, it was the prosecution, the people prosecuting him <laughs> for murder, were actually responsible for it. Um, and, in fact, they'd engaged in some very clever backroom deal to murder Roscius's father, use the uh, context of the Roman Civil War that was uh, boiling away in the background to steal the property of uh, Roscius Senior, blame the son for the murder so the son wouldn't come after them to try and get his property back, and then they could retire and live on these uh, lovely country estates in peace. Um, and according to Cicero, the prosecution were relying on the defence of uh, the dictator Sulla's freedman as in one of his ex-slaves, uh, being behind this whole plot, and everyone being so scared um, of this fellow, Chrysogonus, that no one would dare mention in court the fact that the conspiracy, if you like, went right to the very top. This is sort of like a Watergate-style... But the uh, ambitious thing. young Cicero has, has the guts to do this. Well, that's what he tells us. Or, <laughs> and the other way of looking at it is he makes the whole thing up. That this is uh, the ambitious young Cicero is prepared to play with fire in accusing the freedman of someone like um, Sulla of doing this. So either he's incredibly brave... Um, and follows the money right up to the White House and exposes a great <laughs> corruption, or he's prepared to um, make up such a fantastical story 
um, that you can't help but notice him. Um, and Cicero makes sure we know when he writes the speech, uh, says things like, I can see you all looking um, with open mouths and um, gasping at the fact that I'm going to mention this, but I'm going to accuse you, Chrysogonus, points at him as being behind this whole plot. And I think he's relying on the fact that um, the jury, who's going to be made up of um, senators at this time, so uh, the real political elite, that uh, these people are going to be so sick of the injustices carried out under the Civil War that they're going to want to um, uh, get some revenge or, or get some catharsis, if you like, for those um, things. By you know, maybe we can just save this one person, um, and we can undo some of the injustices by at least stopping this person suffering the very unusual Roman punishment for parricide, which is to be tied up in a sack, possibly with a snake, um, and thrown in a river. <laughs> <laughs> it's potentially worth adding to that a bit about why Cicero had chosen so many hot topics. Corruption is a big deal for Romans, especially um, in a period of civil war that um, oscillates between two political systems, one of complete republicanism, not perhaps democratic, entirely democratic republicanism, as uh, the lack of social mobility means that you cannot... But there's some sharing of power between But sharing of power between organ of government, well, the primary organ uh, legislative body would be the Senate, um, and therefore the power is to an extent in the hands at least of the political elite rather than one man. It's an aristocratic oligarchy. Aristocratic. And that's contrasted with... With, Well, Sulla is the first for a while to bring, bring about a state of dictatorship, which... Is something that Romans absolutely hate because they think that it brings about, uh, they, ha- they hate kings historically, and that it brings about potential for a great deal of corruption in their view because it, it, Roman politics depends to a great extent on the client patron relationship. And if you have, as it were, one super patron who controls through their kind of bounty, as it were, all of the political favours descending from them, it means that there's a greater potential than if there were more checks and balances for stuff like this to go unnoticed because the perpetrator of such a deed is high up to someone. And, yeah. and, so, and so this man, this, this um, Sulla at the Sulla. top, mm. is the person that Cicero effectively accuses. Exactly. By and accusing he's, his freedman, yes, you're accusing him. And, accusing and him. he's very careful to um, say, I'm not accusing Sulla. I'm accusing but... the <laughs> The other thing is, so freedmen are also a bit of a nose-wrinkling topic for the Roman elite, because, um, because basically because they're not of a proper origin. They're, not, um, they're ex-slaves who've made a lot of money or gained a lot of influence in non-traditional routes, as it were, by sort of taking the jobs of the Roman aristocratic sons, in that taking almost civil service-like positions. Well, and, uh, and I'm sure yeah. we, could, we could make we a could whole other programme about them go on, but let, 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 so let's go back <laughs> to Cicero. So this really this makes a big splash. It makes a big splash, and it's um, a topic that um, can twang so many heartstrings that almost the truth of it is less important than its sensationalism. And this sets him on, on the way until about 20 years later, we have him as... Um, as well as consul. Exactly, as, so at the same time as trying to um, make his name as the world's best orator, he's also um, trying to get himself elected into um, this aristocratic elite that we've been talking about. Very difficult to break into if you're not mm. born into the right family, but um, Rome is essentially democratic. To get into each magistracy, you have to be elected by the people. So he's standing for election as he goes along, using his court cases, his speeches in court, his prosecution, his prosecution of the corrupt governor Ferres, for example. He uh, sets himself up as the man who's going to clean up the, um, uh, the morals of Rome as Edile, and so he guarantees his election to one of the more difficult magistracies by using his oratorical career. And by 63 PC, he's reached the pinnacle of that, the, uh, the highest magistracy of the consulship. We'll, we'll leave him there. 
we'll leave from that and, and come back to, to Dimitrione. So this is 30 years earlier. What's the structure of this work, Thierry? So it, it comes in two books. One, one could superficially perhaps say that um, the first book contains all the most important um, divisions and definitions and that uh, book two could be seen as some kind of set of footnotes that expands on uh, what uh, was presented in the first book. So it, it fills up the gaps that Cicero had to leave out um, because of the restrictions that you had on book writing back then. You, you didn't have the possibilities of uh, layouts that we have today. And so basically you have to uh, think about how you approach breaking down a very complex set of rules in, into something which you, you can digest and present in so-called volumen, so um, basically a, a book roll, and uh, you have physical limitations of the length. Um, so, so, so part of his style was governed by the, the publishing? I, I wouldn't say the, um, the, the style, but uh, it's basically the length the, of the The structure, how it... How, the, the, yeah. yeah, exactly. Are the footnotes longer than, the, than book one? Yes, but book two is uh, significantly longer than book one. Um, uh, so, so basically, um, if I come to the content of the, uh, the two books, bo both start uh, with a proem. Um, and so a proem being? A uh, very artful introduction. So in the first uh, proem, he, he presents rhetoric combined with philosophy as a major force in the early process of civilization. so claiming a very big role uh, of rhetoric for mankind. It's a small claim, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in uh, this, the second book, um, he, he talks about why relying on several sources presents many great benefits. And so it's kind of moving away from the topic of the main part of the work and addressing other uh, issues, so um, kind of on a philosophical level, and w which uh, might make us wonder whether those poems were really written at the same time as the rest of the work. Now, in uh, book two, after the proem, uh, you've got the most fundamental definitions and divisions on which the rest of the work is relying. So, uh, basically, if you don't know anything about rhetoric, and if you leave out those passages in, in um, the, the first part of book one, uh, you have a very hard time of understanding what's really going on. So, that's again about um, how do you construct a theoretical treatise like that, you have your introduction, and then uh, you say, well, um, I'm now going to give you the most important uh, definitions and how I structure the whole thing. And after that... Oh, saying this feels starts... quite, quite a sort of formal style, that you're, sort of, yes, you're uh, defining uh, the terms you're going to use, and then exactly. you, you go on to develop. Yes. And uh, you will even notice that uh, throughout uh, book one, um, he's also very formularic in uh, how he starts and ends each part on uh, a certain topic that he's uh, talking about. So basically, for example, he is just finished talking uh, about, uh, say, uh, the narrative. Uh, he says, well, that's everything that I've uh, had to say on the topic, or uh, which one uh, might want to say on this topic. Now I come to um, the next topic, and then he starts with it. And so that helps the reader to um, see, okay, next chapter. The logical structure is very clear. Would you, would you call it ever ponderous, or does he still have, even as a very young man, this, this flair for the language? Let's say um, today, since we, we have all these um, very nice means of layout and so on, where, where you can really see, okay, now this chapter is over. As an entirely new topic that will be addressed uh, in, in the next paragraph. You, you didn't have those divisions 
uh, in ancient uh, books, and so basically you needed those phrases to indicate that um, your topic will change now, and so it helps the reader to understand that a new topic is being introduced, and um, since you didn't have any uh, clear-cut divisions in ancient um, book worlds. Let's go back to Cicero's life, and I think it, but it's also time, we've been going for nearly half an hour now, we should hear some of his, some of his words. So there are a particular series of cases that I can't remember whether it was Andrew or Alice who mentioned them earlier, from this period between 81 BC and his uh, consulship in 63 BC. Um, do you want to uh, remind us about those? Yes, things? yes, happily. Um, yes, going back to Verres, um, the corrupt governor of Sicily. Um, as I think um, Alice mentioned earlier, Rome lacks a crown prosecution service and so it relies on keen young men to bring cases against the great criminals. So one of the charges that Cicero lays against Verres is that he's been um, putting Roman citizens to death without trial in order to try and cover up the crimes that he's been committing. And the, um, the conclusion of uh, the speech as he publishes it is um, a claim that a Roman citizen um, was crucified without trial. Crucifixion, as we know from our Bible studies, <laughs> is uh, the most shameful death that the Roman authorities could inflict on people and something that it was absolutely forbidden to inflict upon a Roman citizen. If you're a Roman citizen, you have a right not to be executed at all without trial, but even under the most extreme circumstances, the idea of someone being nailed to a piece of wood, a Roman citizen being nailed to a piece of wood, um, is uh, the worst thing you could possibly imagine that Cicero uses this to conclude his speech um, in order to inflame the passions of the jury to convict this man, um, somebody who would do something this barbaric, and I think Alice has prepared. I have um, some. Caede Barto Virgis in medio foro Masanae, qui vis Romanis, judices, cum interea nullus gemitus, nulla vox alia illius miseri inter dolorum crepitunque plagarum audie Barto, nisi haec, qui vis Romanus sum which translates um, <laughs> <thank> you. <laughs> as um, there in the open marketplace of Messana, a Roman citizen gentleman was beaten with rods and all the while amid the crack of the falling blows no groan was heard from the unhappy man no words came from his lips in his agony except I am a Roman citizen and this is a piece of oratory that was so powerful that when um, President Kennedy um, went to visit um, Berlin at the height of the Cold War, um, his Ich bin ein Berliner line is um, a translation of that, and the way he introduces the Ich bin ein Berliner line is to say there was a time when the proudest boast one could say was Kiwis Romanus sum. Mm. Now um, the proudest words that can pass the human lips are Ich bin ein Berliner, which you know actually means I'm a cream... Uh, cream donor, so something means actually, yes. Uh, meant to say I'm a citizen of Berlin. <laughs> Error in Ciceronian reception there. <laughs> let's, for I think the final time, we're, we're, time waits for no man. Uh, let's go back to Thierry. Maybe uh, if there's anything about the, the content structure of the book that you feel we haven't adequately uh, touched on yet, but also there's another text on rhetoric for about the same time as Dear Mezzione called Rhetorica ad Herenium, pardon my, my Latin, which has a rather peculiar relationship with Dear Mezzione. So uh, basically, uh, concerning the structure of De Inventione, as I explained, uh, it only covers the uh, first stage in the composition of a speech, and uh, Rhetorica Aterranium covers all five stages. And so in, in that sense, Rhetorica Aterranium is more complete than De Inventione for anyone who uh, uses it um, to get information about um, the theory uh, of Asian rhetoric. 
but uh, for rhetorical invention itself, Cicero's treatise is much more detailed, much longer for that purpose. But what's striking is that both works have great similarities in content for um, rhetorical invention and in many places even similarities or identities in phrasing, which suggests that uh, we've got somehow some... Uh, at least one or um, probably several identical sources in the background, either in Latin or Greek, and then uh, differently translated. Well, was it thought that Cicero wrote both texts? Or? It was considered um, in late antiquity and the Middle Ages, um, basically up to the year uh, 1492, that both works were by Cicero, um, called um, the Old and um, the New Rhetoric, and in 1492, um, a, a humanist from Venice called Raphael Regius thought that Rhetorica Atiranium actually was not by Cicero. And from that time on, um, we've basically got one of the greatest mysteries of Latin literature in kind of game of identifying what is really going on between um, the two treatises, so uh, basically what is their relationship? And is, is, there, is there no decided upon author for um, Rhetorica ad Herenium? For, for Rhetorica ad Herenium, um, there are some scholars um, who try to uh, put a name on it. There's a Roman rhetorician mentioned by Quintilian called Cornificius, who in Quintilian presents a couple of points that are similar to ad Herenium, but are not exactly what we find in there. So um, that's basically the best guess that people do, but it's trying to pin uh, a name on a treatise without it really fitting. And uh, also, we don't know that much about Conificus. So basically, you've, uh, you put an empty name with a question mark on the treatise, so it doesn't really make sense to do that. You, you say in your notes that these two books were kind of the pinnacle of... Uh, rhetorical teaching in, in Renaissance Europe. Exactly, and that was basically um, due to Cicero's great reputation. Um, De Oratoria disappeared in, in uh, the shadow of um, De Inventiona and Atiranium because it's more a philosophical discussion about uh, what the ideal orator and what rhetoric should be like. And so it's not a, a user-friendly manual, if you want, uh, on rhetoric, whereas uh, De Inventiona and Atiranium are really handbooks on rhetoric, which you can use to get a very quick overlook on the most important concepts in rhetoric. Alice Harbert, uh, we've left Cicero in 63 BC, and he lives for about another 20 years and has a rather exciting time of it, both him and Rome. It's a small task, I know, but do you fancy taking us through some of the things that, that happened to Cicero in the later part of his life? Well, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. A lot of confusing things is the main answer to that question, okay. Alan. Um I reckon it's best to begin with his exile. So his exile, is that soon after his consulship? When... Relatively. Um, it really happens as the result of political changes in Rome more than his activity or his opinions or speeches. Rome at the time was a, a place in extreme turmoil, civil wars left, right and centre, and many people hoping to use the instability as an opportunity to rise to the top. At the time, a triumvirate was in power of Pompey Crassus and Julius Caesar. They invited Cicero to become the fourth member, but he declined um, because he disapproved of the triumvirate because he felt that it took power away from the hands of the people in the Senate. Because Cicero is the arch-republican, The arch-republican. Um, he doesn't approve of any means of removing power from a fully public body. 
Therefore, he, he refuses the offer to become a member of the triumvirate. Immediately following that, and possibly in response, there is a law put forward, I believe it's a law of 50 BC, which threatens to exile anybody who has put citizens to death without trial. And that includes Cicero, does it? Oh, yes, a very, uh, 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 perhaps a part of his history that people don't like to dwell on too much is that Cicero, as a result of the Catalinarian conspiracy, put people to death without trial. And this is during his consulship? During his consulship, by, um, by the means of his consular power, he was able, though perhaps not quite constitutionally soundly, to put men to death who he felt had been traitors or proved almost fairly conclusively in his speeches, had been traitors to the Republic and hoping to overtake it themselves. So Cicero falls foul of the, the new political yes. regime and gets exiled. Um, he gets exiled. To, to, is it Anatolia, Turkey? Is it somewhere? I, I believe it's Macedonia. There. Let me um, check that. And Thessalonia, which is, to be honest, quite a nice place. I mean, <laughs> of all the places to be exiled to. But it casts Cicero into an extreme depression, which we can tell from many letters to his friend Atticus about how much he hates being removed from his, his political intrigues in Rome. On his return from exile, he tries to re-involve himself in the political life of Rome, but with limited success. He spends more of that time writing philosophy, not especially good philosophy, but philosophy, and sort of pontificating on various issues, and really gets politically involved again in a substantial way after the death of Julius Caesar. This is 44 BC. Correct, right. yes, 44 BC is the Ides of March, um, Julius Caesar is executed, and something which may surprise a lot of listeners is that Cicero claims that this took him entirely by surprise. The reason this would shock us is that he's an incredibly politically involved man in touch with many of the key players in Caesar's assassination, and therefore his ignorance of the fact would be surprising, especially because we might imagine that he would actually come down on the side of those assassinating Caesar, disapproving of him as a dictator. Then he gets caught up in the incredibly complicated machinations around the, uh, the Second Triumvirate, which, I mean, maybe we, we shouldn't uh, go into. But he, he writes a lot of letters to He writes to a lot of letters to Atticus about his opinions on the main players in this time. I mean, really the figures to focus on here is the man who assassinated him eventually, Mark Antony, and Octavian, later known as Augustus, who wins out eventually on the power struggle to begin the Roman Empire. Octavian is an underdog at the beginning. He's the heir, official heir of Julius Caesar, but doesn't know this until the will is read out. He isn't primed for his position and could easily have seemed, given that he didn't live in Rome and was not especially politically involved at the time, as a bit of a damp squib. And certainly perhaps as someone whom those more au fait with Roman politics could use as a pawn to bring about the settlement that they wanted using his power as a as a pawn, yes. And Cicero is also of this view. He feels that Octavian yes, could Cicero be Cicero writes in letters that he thinks that Octavian is naive and um yes, could 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 be um could be used as a puppet, basically, to bring out his ends. And Octavian finds out about this? Octavian finds out about this and is understandably not happy. <laughs> and that information in fact should colour our opinion of what happens later. I won't go into the incredibly complex power machinations between Antony and Octavian. All I will say at this stage is that the main reason that Octavian and Antony fight is not really because of opposing morals. It really should be more characterised simply as a power struggle. Both of them have 
a lot of financial resources and a lot of troops at their disposal and both want to be number one. And our main source for the history of this time comes from Cicero's letters. I'm afraid, yes. Um, I I wish that we could say... uh, There are other sources as well, but there's a concern for several of them that they could, in fact, be based on the letters and extrapolating from them because they're written even 200 years after the event themselves. But the alternative view is how lucky it is that Cicero wrote so voluminously to his friend Atticus, otherwise um, we might not... We might not not know know at at all. all. I mean, we're very lucky to have, in some ways, the exact opposite (laughs) in terms of source bias provided for us by... um, the Res Gestae, which is an inscription written by Augustus detailing his achievements over his life and inscribed on his mausoleum. And he discusses this period, but very much paints it as a case of him taking responsibility to um, right the turmoil of Rome for the sake of the people and then hand the power back to them as soon as he has a working constitution in place. The fact that Rome then descends into empire (laughs) would suggest that this is somewhat whitewashing his role. And therefore, we need to be careful and definitely use the sources against each other to sort of provide a less um, spun view of what happens. So Cicero doesn't have the financial resources, the army Mm. of Mike Antony, Octavian, these Mm. major players in the civil war. But of course, he's trying to exercise what, what power he has. How does he try and do this? The way Cicero always tries and does that, which is um, via oratory. (laughs) He goes back to the Senate and a number of extremely powerful speeches. In fact, I think they're often considered some of the most florid work in the Ciceronian corpus are issued to the Senate, known as the Philippics collectively, um, which is a pun, really. Well, as close as classics gets to puns. (laughs) um, On a series of speeches given by Demosthenes against a, um, a citizen called Philippus in Athens. Um... The content of the speeches is to persuade the Senate to try and declare Antony a hostess, that is, a public enemy, and bar him from the state. It doesn't work, is the short answer. It doesn't work at all, um, especially because Octavian, around this time, gets wise to Cicero's attempts to play him and actually reconciles with Antony, which leads to the foundation of the third triumvirate, the third member of this being Lepidus, who doesn't, doesn't do a huge amount, <laughs> but still ought to be recognised. The nature of a triumvirate is really that it's a dictatorship with three people. There should be no two views about that. It doesn't refer power back to the Senate in any way. And as a result of this power, what the three men choose then to do is um, a system of prescription, where they basically write down the name of anybody that's been nasty to them and kill them. Simple. (laughs) Simple and (laughs) sometimes effective. And sadly, Cicero goes down on this list for... Well, the extreme polemic that he issues against <laughs> Antony, I don't think I'd been happy um, to be the person condemned in those speeches. But it's actually said that the Octavian, despite being played by Cicero and despite discovering what Cicero said about him in the early days of his um, ascent onto the power scene in Rome, actually argued for two days against Cicero's name being on this list. But he lost the battle, being at that stage very much the junior partner in this alliance. Um, And Antony got his way. Antony got his way, and the rest we've discussed. Three minutes left. I think we should talk about sex, shouldn't we? I think we should. I think it's it's, it's it's become time. It has been lacking. I think one thing you can say about however interesting the bare bones of rhetorical teaching might be, the exciting thing Cicero can put them to uh, 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 can put them to use for is amazing. One of my personal favourite speeches is um, the Pro Caelio, and I'm hoping that Alice somewhere in her um, laptop um, will have a a quote from this. It's a a case that Cicero delivers in defence of a young man who's accused of beating up some Egyptian ambassadors. And 
murdering uh, and murdering them, rather than confront any of the facts of this murder case that he's involved with, Cicero decides that the way to get Caelius off is to distract the jury by talking about an illicit love affair. To, to, to throw dust in the jury man's exactly, eyes. Exactly, to kick du- yeah. dust in their eyes. Cicero decides to talk about an affair this young man had with a very posh, um, recently widowed lady who just happened to be the sister of his great enemy. Just happened. So this is a, a passage in which he casts suspicion on the woman and on um, the grounds of her affair with Caelius, <laughs> in which he feels that um, Caelius was very much taken advantage of. Vicinum adolescentulum aspexisti. Cando huius te et proceritas, vultus oculique pepulerunt, Sipius, videri voluisti, fuisti non lumquam in isdem hortis, vis nobilis mulier illum filium familias patre parco ac tenaci habere, tuis copiis de winctum, non potes, calcitrat, respuit non putat tona tua donna esse tanti, conferte alio. Um, which translates itself as a neighbour, a young man, caught your eye. His beauty, his tall figure, his looks and eyes took you by storm. You wanted to see him often. You were sometimes with him in the same parks. You are a great lady, and by your wealth you want to keep hold of a young fellow who has a mean and niggardly father. You cannot do it. He kicks, he treats you with contempt. He does not think your gifts are worth so much. Take yourself off somewhere else. So he wasn't afraid of an ad hominem attack. Oh, really? No. Um, he he cont- he continues against Claudia Claudia Metelli, who's also thought to be the um, subject of some poems by Catullus, the famous lesbian, his lover, uh, and therefore a somewhat notorious woman on the Roman scene at the time. I suppose you can link this back mm. to the case by saying that she is related to the people who are bringing the prosecution against mm. this. So if we think back to Cicero getting Roscius off in his first case by suggesting that people um, who are prosecuting him are actually responsible for this, by denigrating Clodia in this way, Cicero is suggesting it's all a put-up job, that she's just jealous of him breaking off the relationship. Mm. And if we move quickly to the death of Cicero... Well, I was going to say, so, so it's, it's, we're out of time, but he comes to a sticky end. He comes to a sticky end because Very of exactly sticky. things like this. And as you say, his head is taken back to Rome after it's chopped off for writing too many cruel speeches against Mark Antony. And one gruesome detail of his death is that his head was brought to Mark Antony's wife, who'd been um, assailed in these speeches, and that she took her wig pins out and stabbed his tongue. Uh, for delivering these speeches against it, so it's exactly things like what Alice is be- reading out that brought Cicero to a sticky end. Not a good way to make friends. <laughs> well, quite. Thank you, all three. It's been a fascinating 45 minutes. We could spend, you know, a whole day talking about other aspects of, of Cicero's life and his work. That's what we've had time for. Um, next week, we'll be talking about medieval troubadours. Thank you. <laughs>